to the Lonely Writers Podcast, where we discuss the very real and often overlooked emotional labor that comes with the writing process before, during, and even after the book deal. I'm your host, Eden Boudreaux, and today I have the pleasure of talking with novelist Amber Cowie, whose latest novel, Last One Alive, is an irresistible psychological thriller that follows Penelope, a best-selling author, and a clue-like team of professionals, ex-lovers, and estranged family members to investigate the myth of a witch on Stone Point, a remote coastal outcropping in the Pacific Northwest. As their numbers begin to mysteriously dwindle, they must solve the mystery of the stone witch before the killer is the only one left alive. Amber lives in a small town on the west coast of British Columbia with her family. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. Um, you know, like like we were pre-chatting and I was saying I'm such like an Agatha Christie head, like Murder, She Wrote. I just love a good old-fashioned cozy mystery. And you've said that Last One Live gave you the chance to use the locked room mystery trope. And I'll be honest, I am a huge fan of tropes. I'm obsessed with them. And I've never really understood, I guess it's kind of more recently, but this disdain that people are, this kind of turning up the nose at tropes lately, you know, especially in romance and mystery, but it's like they want to reinvent the wheel kind of thing. But what inspired you to take that classic trope and weave it into a modern mystery, a modern thriller? Ooh, where do I begin? There's so many things to pick <laughs> up on here. Um, so in ter- just to, to start with the idea of being disdainful of tropes, I think is so interesting because to me, the beauty of a trope is as a reader, when I approach someone's work who I know, or it's new to me, and they're using this methodology, this trope to create their own story, I'm always looking for how did they do it? What, what here is new? Why did they decide to use this framework to create their story? What's spoke to them in that? And then what did they do with? Because in a way, when you start with something like this, a system, it's almost like a game. Like, how are you playing a game? And how do you do it in a way that's different than everyone else? And I, Last One Alive is my fourth novel or fourth published novel. I have many that haven't yet (laughs) seen the light of day and probably never will. But, um, But I've never done this before. I've never been so... Um, strategic about the way that I wanted to frame my plot. Um, But I absolutely love the locked room mystery. It's a a kind of story that I gravitate to as a reader. So it just seemed like such a natural fit for me to be able to take it and play with it and make it my own. And I think that there is so much modernity in Agatha Christie, which is so interesting. When you read her stuff now, it still holds up and there's pieces that are Um, I mean, I think there's elements that we would discard, like, for example, and then there were none, which is obviously the most um, famous of her locked door mysteries. Um, Is there when I read it in elementary school, it was called 10 Little Indians and it Uh, had an extremely 
racist um, poem threaded through it. That was like the through line that they used to right. carry the characters forward. And also it illustrates in a very creepy way how each of them die. Um, so there's elements of these older stories that we would never think to use today. And I, I, I had to kind of struggle with that and think about it. And how do you frame something um, in a way that doesn't carry these old shadows of the way our, the belief systems at the time. Um, but I think that when you take something in its like pure form and just think about it in terms of structure and then apply it to the characters that you want to live in the story, then you get to, to do things that are, are hopefully new and hopefully fun and hopefully have like an element that people have never seen before. Right. So that's why I wanted to to use that for Last One Alive. And honestly, I would I would love to play with tropes again. It, it's not how I'm going to write my next book, but I will definitely go back to that form. Yeah, I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that it's. I talk. We talk a lot about what your goal is in publishing. Like, what is your goal with your book? And I think. Not that using a trope can't produce like this award-winning literary, you know, masterpiece, but I think when you're using a trope, it really helps to produce this like really comforting, like, uh, like relatable, like the, just these stories that we can kind of crawl into. And even though the characters are new and the theme is new and the setting is new, it still has that really comfortable nostalgic feeling. And if that's what you want to give to your readers, something that's like, they don't know what's going to happen next, but they also kind of know where we're going with it. That's it's perfect. That's what a trope is there for. And there, there's no reason to shy away from them. Um, I think they're unavoidable. Also, that's the other piece yes. that I think that in as much as you could be somebody like approaching your work saying, I will never do something that's been done before. I think as humans and as creators, we are recycling content and making it our own all the time. And so I think that there's an honesty to, to doing something that is um, so structured to say, this is what I'm choosing. This is how I'm going to, to create this story and come with me. You know, this yes. is now, you know, where we are, come with me. Cause this is the map that I'm drawing for you and we have to follow it together. Yes. I love that you made that point. Um, that is something that I took, it took a long time for me to realize. And it's something that I tell a lot of aspiring authors who say like, well, I have this amazing idea, but like so-and-so did it and so-and-so did something similar. And it's like, yeah, everybody's done everything. I think Shakespeare did everything actually. <laughs> Everybody's done everything. If if no one continued to write because the story had already been told, there would never be another book sold. So, but the difference is that no one has ever heard you tell it. Yes. So even though, you know, I've read and I've watched and I've consumed so many different locked room type mysteries, your book was so refreshing because there was just this interesting twist on it. It was just such a, you know, this... I don't want to say ragtag team, but like this kind of coming together of the group that like, there's so many opposing, you know, forces there. That's a, an interesting pull. And, and, you know, there's the stakes were really high and, and the dimension and the depth. And that's what makes that story unique. Um, you know, so I have to ask what kind of inspired this story? Cause the stone witch and like everything that's so interesting, what, 
brought you to this story? Um, oh, that's such a good question. So this story for the first time, I said it actually where I live, which is in Squamish, a small town um, just north of Vancouver. And I have been always extremely embedded in, in the wilderness that, that surrounds me. I am a skier and a runner. I'm outside a lot. And um, I find that the mountains and the ocean around here are quite evocative. And it's hard for me to not think of superstitious sides of wilderness when I'm ever I'm out. I um I'm very drawn to these mythical creatures, even if it's myths that I'm making up myself. Yes. Yeah. The stone witch has no actual there's not a myth here that I'm drawing on that is what I used, but there's many stories that contributed to the development of um, Ruth and her history. So I, there's a really incredible um, indigenous story. It's from the Squamish nation, which is um, one of the nations that it has this territorial land that I'm on. And um it's so it's a story of a large giant woman who would tromp around the forest at night and she would gather up tiny small children if they didn't go to bed <laughs> and she would take them in this huge sack and put it over her shoulder and she would bring them home um, to a cave and she would eat them. Um, I love it. I know. And so it's... um. You know, obviously there's uh, a lesson here, right? These these monster stories, I think we have always invented them as humans, as cultures, to try to ask or demand some kind of behavior. And in this case, it's for the kids, go to bed, <laughs> don't stay up to date, when they yes. for your dad hey. calls at night, come home. Yes. Um, uh, so that was, that I think was, maybe the tiniest spark. And when I heard that story, there was something there that I was like, oh, I love this idea. I love this idea of this sort of witch in the woods. And then um, I, as the story grew in my head, I started thinking a lot about um, women who had been written in history in a particular way um, that might not be the truth and certainly wasn't the truth for them at the time. And so I wanted to look at um, the perceptions of Ruth. She lived 100 years ago and there was um, something terrible that happened and she was directly associated with it. And I wanted to think about how in a very masculine culture, it was sort of early settlement around here. There was a mine operation. There was the indigenous nation um, that lived here. And there were some pioneers and people who were coming for a variety of reasons to kind of make their way. There was um, a, a, a slight gold rush. There were a lot of people who were living here, but it was a very male dominated culture in the early settlement in, in the white community. And so I wanted to think about, well, how how would a young girl who's adjacent to um, the disappearance of a man be treated by that kind of culture? And then how would that legend be 
added to and, and written over time until it becomes almost a truth. That is something we need to examine. Like we need to examine history. We need to think about the way that are the stories that we've always been told as children, what they, what they really were yes. at the time and how they really affected the people who, who were living. And if those people were the ones who were writing the history, how different it would be. Yes. I, I, I really, I felt that. And I'm glad that that's where I am so happy to hear that that was where you were going. Cause I was really getting that vibe. And I, I felt that, um, almost empathy for Ruth. And I love that because I love that exploration. And I think we're seeing it in society. I think more people are, are doing it. You know, the, the conversation around Medusa and the, the fact that she wasn't the monster that she was made out to be. But it's funny you say that because I have become really interested in the same kind of thing because I'm actually from the East Coast originally. And, you know, we have the Selkies and we have the Sirens and and but it has it's there's been these centuries of myths about women who behaved poorly in whatever way the male society is deemed and then were punished for it by becoming these, you know, legendary monsters. And I agree, it's this thing that you, we need to unpack in a way that, you know, brings the actual truth back to the story. And I love nothing more than an empathetic, like, villain too. Like, to see the, the those kind of multiple facets and layers of a person, that they're not just the bad, you know, monster that puts the children in the bag. There's reasons. There's, you know, Hansel and Gretel ate that poor lady's house. Like, <laughs> I I love that you did that. I, I, that's, I think that's really, I love, I mean, my head just, as soon as you said selkies, I couldn't stop thinking about it, but you know, I, I think that there's so many opportunities to look at someone like Ruth, this imagined figure that I had, she was, um, a, a very, very young bride, a teenage bride married off to a man who lived in this remote little patch of wilderness where he was running, um, a moonshine operation. She was completely isolated from her family. Um, she was, a, a, a young woman of color because her um, her mother had been had come from um, the Caribbean who had, had married her father who was seeking his fortune in the mining operation around here at the Britannia mine, which is actually a real historical site. So I find what was really interesting for me when I'm I did my degree in history. I have an undergrad in history and what I, I was never a very good historian because every time I started looking at the true facts of what had happened in a place, I became so distracted by these side stories that I was creating in my head. Yes. So this is Ruth, the story of Ruth has a lot of um, basis in true fact and the true history of the region where I live and the region where I set the story, but it also has so many divergences from the actual facts because I imagine Ruth and I imagined her setting uh, her situation and then how she would how it would be for her when um, at the end of a very cold winter when she had been isolated with her husband for so long um, two, two men came to shore um, to get some moonshine from her husband because um, he hadn't been out to do his deliveries and, and they came upon his dead body and she was the only one on site Right. What would that look like? How would someone like her get a fair 
trial, if it even came to that, how would she be perceived by these very masculine, very, I'm thinking short sighted men. And so the, the story goes from there in for Ruth, because she just became so alive in my mind. And even though she is the legend upon which the actual plot of this story is based, she was to me, the main character. And I love her and her story so much. I picture her so clearly in my head whenever I talk about her. Um, And I think that she, to me, embodies a lot of how the weaknesses and then cruelty that is often placed on women um, where there's a sense that she is powerless. She was married as a young teenager, married off by her father. She didn't have the opportunity to choose. She was a a child bride Um, and then then taken to this place that was so far away from anything she'd ever known. Um, So in some ways she has very little power in her in her life but then it, as soon as something bad happens she becomes the epicenter of everything she becomes the one that everyone is blaming and so i i think that there's um a, a metaphor there for how um uh, women still have to navigate the world but certainly 100 years ago it was even more prevalent when there were so few women in a lot of Um, societies and there was so little matriarchal power given um so yeah I I think that she is to me the through line of the entire story and it's um I've often been accused um perhaps like more in my own head than even like in the (laughs) world but I write stories that have a very often have a strangeness to them I really love the um the, the monstrous and the macabre and the like the mythical stuff every one of my stories in a different way has some kind of monster in it and I think that um there are reasons for that and it's so interesting to be on a co- podcast with you talking about mental health because I think that um these monsters exist for us in all of our lives in different ways but for me they always come up in my stories. Right. No, I, I think that, I think that mythology and fables and, and, you know, these mythical monsters, I agree. I think that they were originally created as warnings, but I do think that they were also these adaptations of things that we couldn't talk about mental health issues that we couldn't talk about fears that we couldn't talk about. And it's funny you say that because with, Uh, my memoir that's coming out, it's titled crying wolf. And one of the things I touch on is, you know, the, the fable, the boy who cried wolf. And I feel like as women, so often it's this, uh, you know, narrative of women complaining about this and complaining about that. So when we cry rape, well, no one believes us. And, you know, and in my eyes, the wolf is, it's the disbelief and it's the shame and the fear and the guilt that we put upon ourselves um, to create this unreliable narrative. Whereas if we were just raised to speak out and speak the truth, then there'd be no ground to stand on. And so I love that. I love that device of using the monster. Um, Another thing I wanted to touch on is I love your 
use of the inner life. Um, even just in the first few pages of Last One Live, I love almost how little dialogue there was. You you wrote so much of what was going on in Penelope's head, but not in this like real info dumpy way. It was, I really felt like I was like, it was like, you know, the little uh, movie in my head kind of thing. I could really picture the key in her hand and the emotions wavering from loss to anger to sadness and I, I just love the ability for an author to be able to, to navigate that kind of um, inner life because I think that it's hard for, to, for it not to become like, oh, I'm just trying to get the whole backstory out. Um, is that something that always kind of came natural to you or was that something you had to work on? Oh, gosh. Uh, so, yeah, the my, last one alive opens with my main character, Penelope, um, standing outside the door of the apartment that her best friend owned. And she's standing outside the door with the key in her hand, and she's sort of having to fight herself to slide the key into the lock and open the door because she is the executor of her closest friend, Marianne's will. And Marianne is in her early 30s and just passed away very unexpectedly. And Penelope is now having to go into her apartment and um and and decide what to do with all of these things that were left behind um so in terms of how i i developed that opening yeah it took a lot of work i have i find as an author that um i do struggle with that info dump i really have to hold myself back from telling and not showing. I really have to, that opening, I can't even tell you how many times I wrote it. And (laughs) I still worry that there's too much of the past that without the plot beginning, um, it's a, it's a fine balance for me because I, I very much adhere to Stephen King and Anne Lamott's philosophy and many other amazing writers have this kind of idea that you bring the characters to life and then you let them live in the story. You see what happens and that's how the plot develops. And it's it's very character driven. Um, but I find when you write in a way that's very character driven and you really get to know these people that you've created, um, I find it difficult not to stay with them for a long time. I, I like to just like let the readers know exactly yes. who they are and 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 really delve into who what they've done and, and what they, their favorite color is and what they have for breakfast, you know, and I really have to like <laughs> yes. try to get the, the story going quickly. So yeah, that's um that's something that I think is um a skill that I'm still trying to develop and hone and something I have to be really aware of in my own writing. And also to know that the first draft of an opening is probably not what it's going to look like at the end, but the story has to progress. I have to get that out and then let the story um, go where it goes and then figure out how to trim that opening down quite a bit when I, when I actually go back to it and, and rewrite. Um, but it's so interesting that I'm glad to hear you say that you enjoy that part of it because I, I think that um, that was such a personal, um, well, so this is this is kind of getting back to like the mental health thing, but I, 
I think, you know, as a writer, as authors, we draw so much from our own lives. This is just like, you can't not, you've, you've lived the things you've lived and they're going to come through into your stories in, in one way or another. And sometimes it can be conscious and sometimes it just happens. And I often don't even realize how much of my own life I've put into a story until later, really. And sometimes it's years later that I think, oh gosh, that's where that came from. That's, that's why I wrote that the way I did. Yes. Um, but for me, um, that moment with Penelope is very much based on um, what, how I had to navigate my brother's death. And um, I also had to take care of all of the items that he had left behind after he died suddenly. And so I put a lot of that into Penelope's experience. It's a part of death and grieving and loss that was very foreign to me when I had to do it. and. Yet it's something that someone will have to do for everyone who dies if they have left people behind. It is part of the process of letting go of a person and it's extremely difficult. And so I wanted to start there with Penelope because she is in, in many ways, this book, Last One Alive, is a story about grief and um, and the things that you have to work through to be able to overcome a loss. And the physical side of it felt like something that would have resonance for people, even if they hadn't actually had to go through a dead person's things and decide what's staying and what's going, right. it still would, I think, make sense because these objects are, are these things that are, are they're, they're left in the world even when that person no longer is here. Uh, my deepest condolences on your, your brother's passing, whether it was recent or, or not, either way, the loss of someone close to you is excruciating. And the fact that you could take any part of that and and turn it into art is just an incredible strength and it, it, you should be very very proud of that um but i i think that you make such a good point because it's like that that saying going through the motions it <laughs> dealing with people's belongings and estates and money and things once they've died is such a morbid ritual that somehow we've adopted over the years. And, uh, you know, my father is far from being in the grave, but, you know, he's at that stage where he's talking about, well, this will happen with this. And when I pass away and your sister and I will do this. And I remember just having this moment of thinking like, this is really morbid. Why are we talking about what's going to happen to your dishes after you pass away? But it is, it's, it's these motions that still has to, you know, go through. So instead of it being kind of this glossy version of grief and grieving and mourning, I think you really made it quite relatable and, you know, not again, not in a gory gritty way, but just, you know, something as benign as having to choose which of her possessions stay, which get donated, which get sold, et cetera. That is so relatable, like you said, and that. Um, that device immediately, I think, brings your readers in and helps them connect with your character. 
And that's, that's so important, whether you keep that first page or, you know, have 20 versions of it, getting your reader to immediately connect to your main character is what you need to do. That's how you're going to get them to continue reading. And I think you did that. That's so beautifully. Um, when you were writing last one alive, was this pre pandemic or, or right in the, the midst of it? So this book has had a lot of different iterations. The first draft I wrote uh, many years ago, probably four years ago. And um, I had just finished my first novel and um, I had signed with an agent. My first novel is called Rapid Falls. And um, it, Rapid Falls, it would be more, I think, what would be categorized as um like we call them domestic thrillers I think that there's some problems with that category but it's um it, this idea of like it's it's a thriller but the, the tension and and the challenges are are really psychological as opposed right. to externalities shooting gun spies like it's more of like somebody struggling with their own demons and having to confront that within their family and 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 themselves and so um it was the last one alive was a different kind of story, but I, I, I do like we had talked about, I am very drawn to this trope and I loved writing it and I was so excited about it. And so I showed it to my agent and his, um, I, I was like, this is my second book. This is it. This is the one I want. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and as he, he read it and his first <laughs> comment back to me was a lot of people die in this one. And <laughs> I was like, yes, definitely. And then I thought, oh, wait, you're not saying that like a good thing. Um, wait, so that's negative. <laughs> yes. Hey there, lonely writer. If you are enjoying this episode, please head over to our Ko-fi page using the link in the show notes to make a one-time donation or sign up to become a monthly supporter. The Lonely Writer is booked produced, edited, and hosted by a team of one, which makes it a genuine passion project. Your support means more freedom to continue producing new and exciting episodes for your listening every week. Thank you. Now, let's return to the show. So I, um, I had a lot of other manuscripts that I had drafted over time and he thought that there was like a, a more logical second story to follow Rapid Falls than Last One Alive. And so I, um, I, I really just put it on the shelf. And um, I actually have since Rapid Falls published two other books that were more in the, the vein of like that sort of psychological thriller that Rapid Falls was. But, um, but then when I was shopping around for a new deal and, and my agent was, was helping me. He, he asked, okay, well, how do you feel about bringing this one back to the forefront? And I thought, yes, definitely. I love this book so much. I always have, I was sad to leave it on the shelf. I thought there yeah. was so much to it. Um, but before I did, I, um, I, I realized like, so this was in, let's see, it was just at the beginning of the pandemic. So April, 2020 was when he asked me, would you be willing to put this one out into the world and, and put it on submission? And I thought, yes, but I would rather um, rewrite it because it's so dark in the world right now. Um, I would rather put something 
light into this world. I don't know if anyone wants to read anything um, where so many people die. <laughs> and, um, and so I did, I rewrote it and I wrote it so that it had a happy ending. Um, no one died, not a single person. <laughs> and um, it was hard. It was very difficult to write it like that because it, it's, it was very like I, against the trope, first of all. And, um, mm. and it was, it was difficult to create the tension that I wanted to have within this small group on, in this right. remote area um, without it. And also, you know, and you probably struggled with this. And I think we all did as creative people, it was very difficult to write at the time. It, I was so right. distracted. I, regardless of the fact that I have two small children who were home with me and there was really no space for me to do that. I also found like that there was this extremely distracting record playing in my head all the time. And that was COVID and the pandemic and what's going to happen on all this uncertainty. And it was hard to be certain about a story when I felt so uncertain about my life. And so I did this rewrite, I, I sent it to my agent, he put it on submission and I was so incredibly grateful and lucky to have um, Simon and Schuster Canada, this amazing editor uh, named Lori Grassi to, to get to be very interested in it. And she immediately said, do we, can we do a call? So we did a call and her first question to me was, is there any chance that more people can die? And I was like, <laughs> please. So I went back to the original draft. Uh, we talked about it and everything that she was saying was, was exactly how I had written the first one, which isn't that surprising. She's an incredible editor. She's very astute. And she picked up on these threads that existed in the story, you know, like these lingering pieces from the first draft um, right. where it just made more sense to go in, in a particular way than then the way I, I'd been really trying to swim against the tide and make it like a, a happy ending story and so I then went back and I I, I took the first draft and the, and the, the second and I married them and um, and then this is what we ended up with so I I think it's really I I struggle you know as a, a person who tends to write darker fiction and who whose stories don't always have happy endings I wonder sometimes how responsible I should feel for bringing darkness into the world. You know, I don't want, I, I don't want the world to be a dark place. And I think there is so much of that that exists, especially right now. Um, in my life, I work very hard to create light. Um, but in my stories, I tend to not go that way. And though I still find hope and love and beauty within the things that I write, I know that sometimes they have, um, the effect of evoking emotions that are not that pleasant, you know, that, but I have always my entire life, even as a small child, like I grew up um, reading, well, first of all, um, Nancy Drew, and then graduated to like Ray Bradbury, R.L. Stein, yes. like Lois Duncan, who is like my most beloved author, and then went to like Shirley Jackson and Patricia Highsmith and like authors who, even though they too are tackling stories where people die and, 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 and quite disturbing things happen, I always found there to be such a catharsis in those kinds of stories. And that's where I hope that Last One Alive can bring people because it's in a way, I, 
it's so comforting to read a story that's more awful than your current life. It takes you to a place where there are solvable problems and things that are like in um, comparison a lot harder to deal with than the never ending pandemic and the fact that I'm talking to you right now in a house where my family has all tested positive for COVID. They oh all have COVID right now. And I wasn't even sure if I could get on this call with you because I wasn't sure if the symptoms were developed for me. So luckily wow. I'm still symptom free. That's not to say that I'm not COVID positive, right. but we've been self-isolation for the last week and we haven't seen a soul. We, the kids haven't been in school. My husband yeah. hasn't been at work. And so there's this darkness in my life right now, there's, there's also hope because we all have mild symptoms. We're all vaccinated things. have, right. in a way it's kind of liberating to finally get this thing that we've been scared about for two years, mm-hmm. but it's also really unnerving. I'm living in this constant sense of like, are we going to be able to recover from this? Is anyone going to get really sick? Have we spread it to other people? You know, these questions yeah. that are always playing in your head during the pandemic. And so I, hope that this this book gives people a place to go that's different than the one place that they might be in because it's sometimes hard to live in the world we're in right now yeah you make a well one best wishes to you and your family, especially with little ones. I agree. I'm almost to the point that I'm like, it's like chicken pox. I just want my kids to go out and get coughed on, get it. (laughs) So we can just recover. And it's not this looming unanswered question of what's going to happen if we get it. And so uh, best wishes, hurried recovery from it. Um, but I want to, I want to just touch on two points that you made. I think that what you're saying is the trend that we're seeing is like with true crime podcasts and documentaries that have become so wildly popular and people keep being like, why is every woman like 30 and over obsessed with true crime? (laughs) Like almost all true crime happens to women. Why are we so obsessed with it? And I remember hearing uh, a podcaster saying it, at least in their opinion, in mine, it's because it's, it's, somehow giving us this sense of control because in the stories we hear in the news, there's generally not a resolution. Nobody's caught. Nobody's tried. You know, these people go on for years and years and years and years committing these awful, horrendous crimes against women. And in these other stories, like in thrillers, like your yours and, you know, the whole genre even though lots of people are dying and it's dark and it's macabre, there is still this hope, this light at the end of the tunnel where women are feeling like, well, at least we're getting a resolution. You know, it's not the slasher films where we know that the girl's going to get murdered or covered in her boyfriend's blood. (laughs) We know that most likely at the end of this story, she's still going to find some resolution. She's still going to be able to stand on her two feet and and find some sort of justice and coming back around. And I think I agree that that is when we're living in a world where there's so much uncertainty, it is comforting to read a story that may be dark and maybe, you know, tackling these themes, but there's going to be a resolution. And that, I think that's incredibly comforting. And so I don't think that you should shy away from the dark things because that's the real things that are happening. Right. You know, and and the second thing I want to touch on is something that I think is so 
good for any writer who is just starting out to hear about your first pages, because I think that we put, I know, I put so much pressure on myself to have that perfect first sentence or that perfect first five pages, because we're told over and over again, that's what agents see, that's what editors see. And the fact is, is that, again, you want it to be in the best place it can possibly be before you submit it, but it is going to change a thousand times. It's not only going to change what you're talking about. Your story might not even start there once an editor gets its hands on it, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and worrying that like, you know, you love this story so much, but maybe someone comes back with feedback and thinks, you know, well, the market just, there isn't a place in the market for it right now. That doesn't mean that it's never going to come. It doesn't mean that it's time is never going to come back around. You continue to believe in it, that you found the right person and the right team and the right home for it. And now it's here. And so I think that that's really inspiring to, you know, because if you had just given up on that one and put it in a trunk somewhere and never showed it again, maybe you might not be in the position you are today, you know? Yes. And I think that that is I mean, if I could give any advice to somebody who's starting out, it's just to try to let the writing side of it and the editing side of it be very different. Um, There's, you know, writing is a a creative moment. It's the time where the stories should be um, flowing in whatever way they're coming. It's not a time to be analytical and to question what exists on the page as it's coming out of you. I write chronologically. I have a really hard time not doing that. So when I start, you know, I'm not totally certain where it's going to end. And so how on earth could my opening be reflective of the entire story when that story doesn't even exist yet? Um, The editing side is, is it, 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 by necessity, it, it, makes you destroy things. You have to be able to kill your darlings. You have to be able to look at those pieces and think, I love you so much, but it's time for me to say goodbye. And there are definitely the, honestly, mm-hmm. I have to say even the best, the things I love the most about the books that have already been published, they never made it onto the page. They're <laughs> like, they're just these little like chapters. And my husband yes. and I have a joke because I, um, there's a chapter for in Rapid Falls and it was it all it was all about a baby deer. And um, I loved this chapter. Like I showed it to him. I was weeping. This is like the best thing I've ever written. Please read. You're gonna love it. He's reading it and he's like weeping yeah. and he's like, he's like, this is so beautiful and it cannot be in this story. It just doesn't, oh, no. it doesn't make sense in this story. And so we always joke that's kind of our shorthand for these things that you have to be able to let go of. We call them the baby deers. It's the baby deer chapter. And sometimes when even we're, we're watching shows or reading something, we both have read the same book. You, ca- you can kind of see those baby deers like in yes. other people's work where it's like it was something maybe they fought for and they kept in there, but it just didn't make sense. And right. somebody, an editor, maybe from the outside or, or your own, like you as your own independent editor, um, have to be able to take those baby deers and say, I'm sorry, but you're going back out into the wild. Like you can't live in this story anymore. And um, yeah, openings are, I think the thing that get the most scrutiny and rightly so they're like, what pull people into your story? They set the stage. They're very, very important, but it's okay for the first draft or even like the eighth draft of your opening to not be perfect. 
Uh, and that's honestly me saying it to myself as much as I'm saying it to other people. <laughs> Being that you started, you know, writing the the new version and then the new, new version in the pandemic. And, you know, it sounds like where you are is quite isolated and you've got children and, you know, did you find there was any point in writing that you just hit a place where the emotional labor of producing a piece of art amidst the world crumbling <laughs> just got to you where you just got to a point where you felt like you just couldn't continue putting words on the page? Oh, that's really, that question, unfortunately, is is hitting very close to home because I actually, that's how I feel right now. I um. <clears throat> So I found during the early pandemic that, um, uh, this, this is complicated, but my brother, he died um, six days before my first novel was published. And wow. so it was this very challenging moment for me. And forever, I think my novels, my fiction will be intertwined with grief, unfortunately, because um not like it wasn't just that I had this moment of celebration that was being overtaken by the shadow of sadness that was over me, but it was also that um, my brother my brother died of a, a, a fentanyl overdose, and the story Rapid Falls, the novel that had just been published, was about it, uh, two sisters, one of whom was struggling with addiction. So unfortunately, there became a lot of overlap between my personal life and my creative output. And it was difficult because um, we had spoken about this a little bit, but there's sometimes people on the outside read a lot into that and decide that this is what has occurred. And so I was dealing with the loss of my brother. And at the same time, I was dealing with other people's perception of that because of what I had written in my own book and there's so many elements of it that were hard because it was there's guilt and there's um there's this you know sense of obligation or maybe you could have done more kind of feelings and maybe it was wrong to publish a book like this all of those questions are in your head and um so I found oddly that those kinds of emotions and grief that it didn't paralyze me creatively I found that I was still able to write but each of the books that I wrote and again this is how in retrospect you look back and you realize like each of the books that I was I was writing that I wrote and published after my brother died were were about grief and they were about loss and they were like I didn't even really realize that at the time but now I read them or see parts of them and I understand where it came from um I think that in a way I had been in a pandemic like state before the pandemic hit because for those years from the end of 2018 until the beginning of 2022, I was grieving for my brother and, and trying to come up with those answers to like what happens now, what you do after you lose someone really close to you. Um, how do you live your life now that that person doesn't exist anymore mm -hmm. is the biggest question that you have when you lose someone that you love. Um, so I was 
sort of self-isolating already because I was trying to figure that out. But I also had two young kids. Um, my son, he was two when my brother when my brother died and my, my daughter was five. So they were really little and they needed me a lot. And, um, and so I lived in a way that was quite distant from a lot of people for a long time. And then I was really just starting to be able to not pour myself as much into my writing, but actually get out into the world again. And then the world shut down. And so it was interesting though, because when um, the beginning of the pandemic, and I don't know if you found this, but I felt there was a lot of sort of manic energy around like um, Zoom events and getting yourself out there and and doing Mm. like classes and doing things. And so I ended up having a lot of invitations to, to do different things on Zoom and live in this digital world and kind of be quite busy. And so I found that, um, my work didn't really suffer um, at the beginning of the pandemic, even though I had very little time to write, I was on deadline. And so I just had to make it work. I had to work in the evenings, get up at five in the morning. I had to just shove it into the space that existed for me as small as it was. Um, but then once I I got this book to my editor and sort of like done and dusted and it's ready to go, I found I'm struggling very much to to get to my next project and I have it in my head and I know what I want to write but it's been very difficult to create it and I think part of that is that I I do find myself really struggling with this uncertainty of the world that I have a really I'm having a really hard time coming up with the ending of a story or even like being definitive about my characters because in my head there's so much not knowing and there's so much um fogginess you know I I find I'm just so distracted and um the 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 demands of the pandemic on women um and this is not to make like a a very uh very very clear generalization but it is true that there are less women in the workforce now than there were in 1987 that's how many women have had to leave their jobs to become primary caregivers, um, primary household managers, um, primary everything to be able to like comfort and like pivot and um, parent these little ones who are living in this like really quite awful world for little kids. Like they can't connect with their friends. They are having a hard time even doing like small play dates. Like everything is uncertain and kids love things to to be clear and certain. And they live in a world where everything is ambiguous. And I'm constantly telling them, I don't know. And we'll see. And maybe, maybe later and hopefully in a week and hopefully in a month. And now it's open. Now it's closed. Um, So there's a lot of emotional labor that's happening. And it's, it's obviously not just for women because there's definitely men who who have gone into these roles too but in my life and many 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 of the lives that I know it is the moms who have had to step up and be um these point people for everyone at all times and it's hard to do that and still um and still create. And that makes me sad to say, it's not that it it won't happen and I'm digging deep and I'm going to keep going, but this is not the easiest moment for me to write. 
Well, I think that you're making two very good points because again, I agree. And I say this all the time. There are plenty of stay-at-home dads. There are many, many male identifying partners who stay home and they've taken the workload for the kids. But I agree. The majority are women. And the thing is, is that, you know, I've heard the comment, well, you're choosing to stay home with the kids. Kids are resilient. They'll be fine. It's not a choice because, you know, even for myself and many, many writers who, you know, have to have the the day jobs, we can't full-time write just yet. Uh, you know, I, I don't have that option anymore because, you know, especially here in Ontario, you know, one month school's in the next month school's not in. So I can't have a nine to five and tell them, you know, well, sorry, I can't come in for two weeks because schools are closed or the kids had the sniffles. So now they have to self-isolate. And so, you know, I think a lot of people are then in turn putting their creativity on the back burner because you have to be mom, partner, household manager, maybe now you've had to pivot to working from home, where do you have the time or the energy or the stamina, the mental bandwidth to create in something like that? So it is incredibly understandable for, you know, a lot of moms uh, and parents to be at a place where it just feels so you can sit at the computer all you like. It just feels like it's not coming out of you. You have nothing left to give. And the other point that I think is interesting, you know, you were saying that during the pandemic, you felt like you were kind of go, 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 and you could get all these projects out. And what I'm hearing a lot of people saying is it, it's almost like a lot of people are suffering from a pandemic hangover. Mm -hmm. Like we were so determined to make that period of time, um, you know, one that was worth something. Oh, I can show I did this, or I learned how to knit or like anything. We wanted to show that we did something during this time that now that we're kind of coming down on the other side, it's like, I just want to sleep for eight months. And like, I just want one giant catastrophic event to not happen for like 30 days. (laughs) (laughs) And And that's kind of where it sounds like you're at, that you're just kind of at this place where it's like, you're just so burnt out from the not knowing and the, the heavy lifting of the keeping your family in good spirits and keeping everybody from spinning out of not knowing that you're just kind of at this place where like, I just, I have no fuel left in my tank. And I think that's a very honest place to talk about. Yeah. I mean, there's some, like, I think for a lot of us, it felt like, oh, this is a temporary state of being in the world. And now all of a sudden you're, we're almost two years in and we're like, is what's our definition of temporary here? And obviously you can't keep using that adrenaline to fuel you over the course of years and years. Uh, and it is, that is, I think it's very apt for you just said and, and exactly where I'm at. And I, I was saying, I was talking to a friend the other day and I was like, you know, I, I think that, um, For so long, I was operating in that sharp state of adrenaline-fueled certainty, you know, like that, that this had to be done and this had to be done and we need to get this done, this done, this done. And I just, I'm just, I'm just, I've run out of that. Um, And I am feeling oddly 
emotionally um, so much better because I don't have these sharp spikes of fear and these sharp spikes of anxiety. Um, I just am sort of living in like a neutral fog where I'm, I'm letting things wash over me. I'm taking them as they come because I can't react in the same way that I used to, because there's just been too many of them to be able to generate all of these emotional responses to me. So now I just live in a place of acceptance and peace but it's odd that that just isn't like a great spot for creating you know you need to have the ability to feel things so deeply to for me to be able to write a story writing a story where I'm just kind of like I guess but yeah. <laughs> this is what's happening now it's just not it's not yeah. really creatively inspiring exactly it's almost like you need to you need to find the place where you're taking what comes every day. You're accepting what you can't handle and, you know, and you're finding peace and you're finding joy, but then letting, waiting for that fog to lift yes. so that you can start seeing a little clearer again. And I think, you know, I think honestly, I think that just comes down to being kind to yourself and giving yourself the time to do that, you know, because I think I, I'm sure being mid, you know, kind of mid career where, you know, there is the looming pressure of the next book deal. And then your editors want to know what you have coming next. And maybe you're on a contract where you have to produce so many a year. Um, but I think it's being kind and giving yourself the permission that like, we all just went through something pretty fucking intense. <laughs> like it's okay to ask for a little time. And in general, I think most publishers and most editors are okay to say, yeah, you know what? Take a breather. Call us well, in a month. I, I think yeah. as a, as a writer and as a like artist, anyone who's creating something in the world, like, and, and I'm not just talking about people who are working in fine art or, or, or novel writing or essayists or memoirists or whatever, like there's lots of different ways that people create. And um, I, in a way, I can really benefit from this period, this long period of sadness that I had, which has like some real echoes with what the world is experiencing in terms of the pandemic, because I tried very hard to um, write a book at about this stage in my grief process. And the book was an absolute mess. <laughs> and I sent it to my editor for months and months. I was on a contract. I needed to give them my third novel. And I wrote this book and rewrote this book and wrote this book and rewrote this. And the, my editor got it so many times. And each time she had to wade through it and try to figure out what it was that I was trying to do. And then when she sent it back, she'd sent me notes and I felt so bewildered by what I was trying to do. And I know now that when I'm in this state of mind, it's really hard for me to tell a story. And so I think sometimes you have to be honest with yourself and respectful of your process and be like, okay, if I am living in a state where I am being and healing and resting and trying to become the person that I am now, that's where the energy that I have is going. It's very difficult to take that internal energy and turn it into something on the page for me. It doesn't work. And so it, it's so, so odd to be able to feel like 
something really terrible has helped you learn because while you're going through it, <laughs> the last thing you think is that you will end up being a better person, but it's has has so much value for me right now as a creator to be like, okay, at that time, I just constantly was like, I, I'm ignoring this. I'm just going to hammer through. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Um, but the result was quite poor. <laughs> and then that <laughs> in itself was really devastating because I was trying so hard and what I was making was not good and not working. Um, and so now I'm being able to be a little bit more gentle, a little kinder with myself and also just a little bit more wise, like to know that there are times where the stories are there and should be told. And there are times where you need to rest and let them sit. And the end result will be just as good, if not better, if you let yourself have these periods of dormancy. Right. I, I think that that's so beautiful. And, and I love the way that you communicated that journey for you, because I think it's really important. I think people see memoir writers as having that kind of journey. You know, it's so deeply personal. It's so much unpacking, but I think that there's not enough credit given to fiction writers and, you know, who are, are really not everyone, but uh, so many are really deeply imparting parts of themselves and their life experiences and things that they've gone through into these fictional stories that it can be just as much of an emotional process. And I think that it is very, very fair of you to, have gotten to a place where you can be kind to yourself and gentle and say like, okay, this is the process that I needed to go through and to get to a place where now I can, I can see clearly where this story needs to go through. And, you know, I just wasn't seeing it clearly before and that's okay. I think that that's incredibly beautiful. And thank you very, very much for sharing that. Cause I think that that will touch a lot of fiction writers who worry that, that, the depth that they're trying to put into their story may not be seen for what it is. Mm -hmm. I think and, it, I, I think mean, it I, does. I want to, I want to say thank you to you because so much, like it's very difficult to articulate this and I'm not talking about process with like, you know, my, the moms at school drop off. Like I, <laughs> it, there's not a lot of moments in my life where I get to sit down and speak with another writer who is really being thoughtful and insightful about how it is that we create stories. And over the course of this conversation, I feel like I've kind of figured out some things in my own head and where I'm at. And you giving me this platform and others this platform is so important to building that community and that honesty that we can have with each other and then learn things about ourselves. Conversations are a big part of this whole creative process, but sometimes we don't really get a chance to have them. And like you said, when we don't have the outlets that we usually do, like the conferences and the workshops and the like just one-on-ones are, are with our writing groups, we don't get to talk about that as much. And that's really hard too. Exactly. I, that's, a, well, thank you uh, for recognizing that. Cause that is exactly the point of, of this conversation and what I hope to be a larger conversation down the road and to have it grow because it is, you know, we just, we're so lacking in having that one-on-one -on -one connection with those in our community. And I mean, we are already in an industry where there's so much competition. It is so much this person against that person that, 
you know, to not have those, even if they're very small moments of connecting and being able to see your struggle in someone else's struggle. And we can all kind of have that camaraderie of like, we're all in this together is so much more helpful than, you know, a, a, a great motto on the side of a coffee mug. Like it's, it's that these conversations are so freaking important. So I'm really happy that, you know, that it's recognized and that we had the chance to chat about it today. Um, thank you so, so much. And, you know, so what I like to do at the end of the episodes, just to kind of add, add a little fun, upbeat spin on it is I have a little segment called 20 questions, but only five. Cause who has time for that? <laughs> Cause I talked to so many moms and they're all, they say they all can relate to that. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask you five questions and it's just going to kind of help us to get to know you and your process a little better. Just a fun little game. All right. Fire away. All right. So for your first draft, is it notebook or laptop? I cannot imagine writing in long hands. I am a typer. <laughs> I just, I mean, I honestly, I, I couldn't even read my own writing if I tried. I have so much respect for people who write by hand, but for me, I'm, I'm a typer. I always have these great intentions and I swear every project I have this, you know, this never ending stack of moleskins. Okay. <laughs> and so for every project, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to get the brand new fresh moleskin. And I start the first page and then I had, I had horrible carpal tunnel, but I also have arthritis in my hands. So I get about a page in and I cramp up <laughs> it's like, who I, who actually uses these. <laughs> I, I love, I love the process and people have these beautiful, incredibly ornate things, but I just, that yeah. is, I cannot, I, um, <laughs> I, 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 I credit my, um, elementary school, uh, keyboarding teacher because I'm pretty fast uh. this and I, I can type way faster than I can write. So I need to be able to do it at speed most of the time. So I, I'm a typer. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So you're fueling up for a long writing session. Do you go for coffee, tea, or a shot of something stronger? Like booze? Yeah. <laughs> like a, a Hemingway version. <laughs> yes. You know, write junk, edit sober. That's actually yes. really in line with what um, <laughs> I was saying previously. So my husband is a brewer, so I'm not oh. going to say that beer is not involved in my process <laughs> at times. Um, but mostly it's coffee. And honestly, this is so strange, but it's very difficult for me to write without carrots. I eat really constantly as I'm, um, writing, I'll have lots of little like nibbly things like almonds, things are crunchy right. for some reason, but carrots, I write, I, I love to have a whole bunch of carrots that I just eat as I'm, as I'm writing. That's I'm amazing. Like a baby carrot, or are you like no. a big full carrot like, stick? Full carrot peeled that I can just crunch on like bugs money. <laughs> you, you and my youngest son would get along well because he, that is his favorite thing. He just pulls a giant, you know, nine inch carrot out of the fridge and just wanders around the house. <laughs> I, I find love it, it. I find it very inspiring for some reason. And, um, I love little it. Chick, little chick I love that. Food. I'll have to try that one. Okay. When you're not writing, or reading, what is your guilty pleasure to wind down with? 90 Day Fiance. <gasps> yes. Yes. I finally found another person. I, it's so bad. It's good. It's, it's so 
you know, I, I try so hard to like justify it to my um, husband and friends. They, talk, they hear me talk about 90 day fiance a lot, but I, I feel like there's so, but what I've landed on lately is that I think that it is in, an incredibly rich mine of character traits, yes. right? There's yes. so many things in it that you're like, whoa, yes. Like being able to see a real person with almost like a cliched personality. It gives you like a lot of, of, of material. Um, yeah. But I, I do, I have always been a bit of a trash TV aficionado, <laughs> but I, I love 90 Day Fiance with all my heart. And I, <laughs> I will never apologize for that. I actually, Please you know, don't. I, I love it there's a piece that like this just to pick up on a little bit it's like this idea of like guilty pleasures I actually really try to like not describe these things in this Mm -hmm. way because I think that I've always been somebody who is um like on or off like I have two speeds and I need to be able to find that place where you can kind of shut off and watching like silly tv and 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 trashy kind of storylines uh are that's a place for me where I still feel like there's pieces of my brain that are working on like how did they contrive this what is going on how much is real how much is is put on for the camera um why would someone do this who is who are these people like I find them all very fascinating um and so there's a part of me that I know my brain is still working but it's also at rest and I think that's really important when you're a creative person to have that place of rest so I don't feel guilty about that I um I I think that everyone should have a place where they can turn themselves off by turning themselves on yeah. a little bit. Like, yeah. No, I completely agree. I love that. And I love that. I love how you explain that. Love it. Okay. So um, if you could pick anyone to play your main character, now I'm going to say either Ruth or Penelope uh, in an adaptation of your novel, who would it be? Oh, that's such an interesting question. So I, I often find the list actors to be the people that I have in my head as I'm Mm -hmm. writing and Penelope she I honestly wouldn't even be able to tell you the actor's name but she was a um, secondary doctor on Grey's Anatomy she had (laughs) sort of strawberry blonde hair and really really sweet and um she was somebody that I always thought of when I was writing her in terms of like the physicality right um for, for Ruth, I thought a lot about, um, she is an actor who was just in the movie with Kate Blanchett, where she, um, she was a love interest for Kate Blanchett. Um, she's very slight and really, um, her, her face is very haunting. Um, I, I'm normally so good with actors' names, but again, this is like kind of a blank spot in my head right now because I've got- Almost so reminds many- me of like Tilda Swil- Swinton. Exactly, that angular yeah. cheekbone, like, but she, um, yeah, she, so I guess like this is probably to say like that I, I think more of like particular features from an actor as opposed to like their entirety 
and who like they would be because I think that you know like we run into these problems of like when you see an adaptation of a story that you have that you love and you're like oh I never pictured that person in that way that's terrible you know um yes but then but then there's other times where you're like wow they really embody exactly Mm -hmm. the character you know like army hammer playing um max in um the latest adaptation of rebecca was like oh yes terrible he was just really not at all what that character demanded but there's so many actors who could have been that it's more of like that vibe you know and so i don't think about things like so um linear in such a linear way in terms of who is the actor but it's like who has the cheekbones who has the eyes who has like that that piece that really drove me to create them so I guess I would be a terrible casting director (laughs) (laughs) that's okay you'd be good on like a model like casting though you I feel like you'd be very like cutthroat like you 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 go (laughs) you have to have the vibe I'll tell you if you have the vibe or not and then and then see you know Perfect. (laughs) Okay. Last question. If, uh, so how do you celebrate a win? Uh, whether it's a big win, you sold your next book or it's a small win, you're getting edits back and they're not completely shredded. How do you celebrate that win and really celebrate yourself? Um, so I, this is something I'm very much working on because I'm not really good at celebrating the win wins. I'm really good at bemoaning the losses. <laughs> and I, I don't like my glass is not always half full, but um, I just did my cover reveal for last one alive. And that's a big moment in terms of like a novel release. And I wasn't planning to do anything to celebrate it all. Like I said, we have, you know, we're very busy. We have two little ones and it's a, it's a full house and there's just so many things to go on. But my husband texted me, um, halfway through the day when this cover reveal was happening and going really well. And he said, don't worry about dinner tonight. And so when he came home, he just had stacks and stacks of of bags of, um, frozen dim sum. Oh, so we had a beautiful dim sum dinner. And, um, I think, you know, maybe that's our new tradition because it was wonderful and it was simple, but it was really special. And I, I think that celebrating the wins is hugely important. Yeah. So I'm trying to get better at that and um, and how better to celebrate than dim sum. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. And having someone uh, help you celebrate yeah. it, I think is really important too, because I mean, we, we definitely should give ourselves permission to celebrate for ourselves, take yourself out on a date, buy yourself a bottle of champagne. But it is, it is very nice when your partner or a family member or a friend or someone helps you celebrate that. I think that's beautiful. That's wonderful. I do too. And do that for other people too. You know, if, yeah. um, if you can tell, if you know something special has happened to someone, it's such a, it's such a good feeling to be able to, to praise them and, and take a moment of this long life that we have and make one of those moments just so special and so memorable because, you know, there, there's so many moments that go by that we're not marking at all. And, um, if you can not let the, the good ones go by, that's, I think a really good way to live. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, thank you so much again, Amber, for chatting with me. Um, You know, I'm really looking forward to 
hearing every hearing all the readers when they get their hands on last one alive and i think it's going to be a beautiful release and i think it's going to be a, a huge hit um can you tell us uh and tell our listeners where they can find you online so they can keep up to date on everything sure i mean i'm I'm lucky because I'm sort of the OG for my name. So um, (laughs) any social media platform, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, even LinkedIn, it's just at Amber Cowie. Um, And then my website, also very simple, ambercowie.com. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite show. Thank you again, and until next time, Lonely Writers, be well.